This is episode number 285 with top contributor on Stack Overflow, John Skeet. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by Super Data Science, our online membership platform for learning data science at any level. We've got over two and a half thousand video tutorials, over 200 hours of content, and 30 plus courses with new courses being added on average once per month. And you can get access to all this today just by becoming a Super Data Science member. There is no strings attached. You just need to go to superdatascience.com and sign up there, cancel at any time. In addition, with your membership, you get access to any new courses that we release, plus all the bonuses associated with them. And of course, there are many additional features that are in place or are being put in place as we speak such as the Slack channel for members where you can already today connect with other data scientists all over the world or in your location and discuss different topics such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, data science, visualization, and more, or just hang out in the pizza room and have random chats with fellow data scientists. Also, another feature of the Super Data Science platform is the office hours where every week we invite valuable guests in the space of data science and interrogate them about their techniques, about their methodologies in the space of data science. And you actually get a presentation from the guest and you get an opportunity to ask Q&A at the end. And in some of our office hours, we just present some of the most valuable techniques that our hosts think are going to be valuable to you. So all of that and more you get as part of your membership at Super Data Science. So don't hold off, sign up today at www.superdatascience.com, secure your membership and take your data science skills to the next level. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, super excited to have you back here on the show today. And I'm super humbled by our today's guest, John Skeet. So John has submitted almost 35,000 answers on Stack Overflow, and his advice has reached an estimated 276 million people worldwide. That's 276 million. Quite an insane number if you uh, take a second to think about it. So I just got off the phone with John and the podcast you're going to hear is going to be very interesting. And we had a great discussion and it's going to be a different perspective today. So the reason for that is that John is not a data scientist. He's a C-sharp developer, an expert in C-sharp and uh, also some other programming languages. And don't let that scare you away because a couple of reasons. First of all, there's a lot of similarities between data science and development. Both use programming and things like versioning and diagnosing problems are common between the two. So we can learn quite a lot of things from John. The other reason why this is very relevant is because data science is more and more coming closer to product uh, development is, is being integrated more and more into products. So before data science was just, let's get some insights, let's do some predictions. 
more and more we see that they, companies are integrating analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, data science into their products. So you will eventually, it's highly, highly likely that in your career, especially if you go and work in startups, for startups, you start startups, that you will encounter situations where you need to combine your data science knowledge with development knowledge in order to productionize data science. And are therefore already in this podcast, you can get a head start and understand how these two worlds meet and what are their intersects. And finally, the third reason is maybe you are coming to data science from a world of development. Maybe you have some experience in programming languages like C Sharp or compiled languages. And it'll be interesting for you to see John's perspective on the world of data science. So all in all, a fantastic podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation. You'll hear a lot of very valuable technical topics that we covered. And also at the end, we actually talked about the importance of community, what it means to be part of a community and how communities grow, what you can do as a data scientist to make our community be more inclusive, more welcoming and prosper further. I think this is valuable. These are valuable insights for somebody who's been heavily involved in the development community. These are valuable insights for data scientists and for us all to grow much faster and better and stronger as a community. On that note, can't wait for you to check out today's exciting podcast. And without further ado, I bring to you the top contributor on Stack Overflow, John Skeet. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show because I have John Skeet on the other line. John, how are you going today? Very well, thank you. Very well. Very, very nice to talk to you. Um, could you uh, please remind me, what city are you calling from, from the UK? So I'm in Reading, which is just to the west of London. Just to the west of London. Very cool. And you, you said you're having some fantastic weather these days. Yeah, it's been really nice recently. Um, a few occasional downpours, but uh, generally we're escaping from the normal British wet weather of a, of a summer. Um, so it's very fine. The only downside is by the end of the day, the shed from which I usually work is pretty warm. <laughs> That's a good problem to have in yeah. In the UK. Um, and it was so cool to see your drums. That's so that's so <laughs> awesome. That is very exciting. I wish you could, <laughs> maybe one day you can play something and we can. I, I think it'll be quite a while before I'm uh, even slightly good enough to play for anyone else. Uh, I only bought the drum kit a week and a bit ago. So I'm practicing hard, but I've got a long way to go. Fantastic. Well, so you're in Reading. How long have you been in Reading for? Uh, just over 20 years, actually. So straight years. out of university, I ended up uh, working for digital equipment um, that was in Reading and moved to my first house in Tilehurst, which is the sort of um, village near Reading. Uh, it's a bit bigger than a, than a village, but we tend to call it a village. And I've moved within Tilehurst, but stayed basically there. So even from before I was married. Wow, fantastic. And um, you're married now? Yes. So uh, we celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary fairly recently. Uh, yeah, very, very happily married. Wonderful. That's so cool. Congratulations. And um, John, so what fascinates me is that from a, uh, would you say Reading is uh, like a little place or a big place? Uh, Reading is a very large town sort of bordering on being a city. So it's not officially a city, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the next five or 10 years time, it was given the official designation of city. Uh, 
it's quite close to London and there are really good rail links uh, that are improving over time, actually. So while a lot of people do commute from the outskirts of Reading into Reading, an awful lot of people also go from Reading into London to work in London. But it's it's great because it's nice and close to London, uh, so I can get to the office when I, when I need to, uh, and also go to see plays and musicals, which I love doing. But also it's really close to the countryside. So you know, house prices are bad, but not awful. And I can get to the countryside nice and easily, get to other places in the UK. So it's a really nice place to be. Oh, fantastic. And um, that that is exciting. So what I find very interesting is that from a almost city-sized town of Reading, which, I, I, which is very exciting that it's growing, um, from the town of, uh, town of Reading, you have done something extremely like unfathomable. So you are the number one contributor to a little website called Stack Overflow. Uh, you have answered 34, over 34,000 questions and you have reached over 276 million people. Uh, if I was wearing a hat, I would take it off for you right now. That is huge. Congratulations on that. Thank you very much. Thank that you. Is it, it doesn't feel that big a deal because it's sort of just something I've been doing for what, over 10 years now. And I, I answer fewer questions than I used to because there are fewer questions that sort of seem like they are appropriate for me to answer. Uh, but I do still I go on there every day. Um, I think it's probably been nearly nearly 10 years since I last missed a day on Stack Overflow because I take my laptop on holidays and things. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I managed to disengage from main work, but I do always like to keep an eye on what's going on on Stack Overflow. That's that's very impressive. And uh, so your, um, your profile has been viewed over 1.8 million times and it's, it's just incredible how you've contributed to such so many people such a such a great cause um how does that make you feel uh obviously i'm thrilled to have helped lots of people but i think it's worth bearing in mind that there are lots of other people who have helped huge numbers of people as well yeah. and huge numbers of people who've helped just a few people and so the cumulative effect is enormous now i'm privileged that being number one draws uh, a certain amount of um potentially undeserved praise. So there is the sort of myth of John Skeet as this perfect programmer who never needs to consult any documentation. And in fact, just over the weekend, there's been an interesting Twitter thread where someone, uh, I believe a venture capitalist, gave his impression of a 10x software engineer who never needed to consult documentation, knew every line of code that had been deployed into production, and various things that I actually thought weren't particularly positive for uh, really empowering a team, a whole team rather than one person to drive forward a product. But there is this this myth of um, me never writing a, a line of code that's incorrect and, and all mm -hmm. kinds of things, which I hope most people understand just is not reality at all. I am a pretty regular kind of guy. Uh, I make bugs just like everyone else does. I kick myself after you know, losing an entire day or two over something that turns out to be a tiny typo. Mm -hmm. I happen to have just gained this mythological uh, reputation by just contributing a bit more than other people have on Stack Overflow. So 
yeah, it definitely doesn't reflect reality, but I kind of enjoy it at the same time. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Thank you. And so for our listeners, we're going to set the scene. So John, uh, you're a uh, expert programmer in C Sharp, correct? That's right. Yes. C -sharp. I have loved C Sharp since it started. Um, so I, I think I played with some of the betas before it became, went to uh, general availability 1.0 in 2001, 2002. And I've been working with it either professionally or on an enjoyably amateur status uh, ever since then. Sort of, I've alternated between working with Java and working with C-sharp professionally, but whenever I've been working just with Java professionally, I've kept up with the C-sharp um, in my free time. Fantastic. And I also have uh, played around C-sharp. I, I created, <laughs> I was helping one time, uh, create my, my brother created a Sudoku for one of his uni assignments uh -huh. in C-sharp, which was fun. Uh, I totally love, my favorite language is C, I would say, and then C++ because of its object-oriented uh, um, nature. And C-sharp is fantastic as well, although I don't know it really great. So what I wanted to do is, before the podcast, for this is for better for our listeners, like, John and I sat down and actually discussed what we're going to be talking about. Because as you can imagine, while C-sharp can be relevant to some data scientists and can be used to de deliver, deploy, develop data science applications in some cases, in most cases, it's not our language of choice. So you might be surprised, what are we going to be talking about with John if he's an expert in C-sharp? So if you hear some notes about C-sharp in this podcast and you are interested in C-sharp, that is awesome. That is for you. But at the same time, what we're actually going to be focusing on with John is the importance of community and importance of, you know, what it is like to be in a tech profession, because there are lots of similarities between development and data science. And through his work on Stack Overflow and through his exposure to the community of developers in Stack Overflow and this in general, this community that's helping each other out it will be very interesting to gain some insights because the data science community, as far as I know, is not that uh, old, as old as the development community. So maybe you can, there's some takeaways that we can apply to the data science community and to uh, how we interact with each other. So that's what uh, I expect we're going to focus on, but never know how the conversation is going to go. So Absolutely. It's My experience is that uh, podcasts well, certainly podcasts that I'm on tend to meander away from what we expected the point, <laughs> um, often including things around versioning or dates and times, uh, which are two other topics that I'm fairly passionate about. And I suspect that we'll find in the course of this discussion that there are uh, various uh, touch points where the data science, the, the problems that the data science community face are similar to the problems that the, the more regular programming community faces. Uh, there, there will be various similarities and hopefully a few differences we can note and sort of learn from each other, uh, you know, new, new approaches that we could take. Totally, totally. And even this one that you mentioned, like the versioning, that is such an important thing. Like in data science, we don't have, as, like it may be in the silos and in certain companies, um, there maybe there are certain frameworks that are coming out where there's very rigorous methodical system for versioning where but overall when somebody starts with data science that's the last thing they probably learn they learn about right. machine learning and so on but they, they don't have this habit of versioning files like i i through my work at deloitte where you know they have very specific uh ways to version anything like i even version my 
um, I don't know, text documents, PowerPoints, they all have like version 1.1, version 1.2, 3.7, like everything I create always, almost always has a version. Whereas in data science, I don't think that's the case. Tell us about the importance of versioning in development. So within the .NET community in particular, um, we've adopted uh, Semver, so semantic versioning, which was is not .NET specific and is fairly widely used within programming where uh, every, an artifact, so whether that's a library, an application, whatever, but probably something that people are going to, other people will depend on, so they need to know uh, how it's going to behave, that gets a three-part version number. So it has a major, minor, and patch version, and also potentially some other information like a dash beta zero one or whatever that says this is pre-released and can change sort of arbitrarily. But then if you say I'm following semantic versioning, that means that uh, if, if I've published a 1.0.0 of something, then if I publish something else within the same major version number, yep. then it should be backward compatible. So if I publish a 1.1.0, then anything that was previously using 1.0.0 should be able to upgrade to 1.1.0 without being broken. Mm -hmm. then so basically, it, it should be able to use 1.1.0 without... Um, you know, you changing that initial that the code of that thing that's using these exactly, and there are there are different levels of compatibility. So one thing would be, and this this depends on your programming language and environment and things. But in something like C sharp, which is compiled, so there's a separate compilation step that happens long before execution. Mm -hmm. There can be different things where uh, you may say, well, it's source compatible, so your code that built against 1.100 can still build against 1.10. And there's the other aspect of binary compatibility, which is, well, I, I compiled this code against 1.00, but actually at execution time, for whatever reason, I'm loading 1.10 of the library, and that should still be okay as well. Mm -hmm. And then you get patch versioning where you should be able to go backwards or forwards in time. So if I, if I could build against 1.15, I should also be able to build against 114. So it's sort of forward compatibility as well as backward compatibility. Mm -hmm. And then you get into really difficult problems where you're writing an application and you depend on one library that depends on another library at version one, but you want to depend on that same library at version two, and those aren't necessarily compatible with each other at all. There could be all kinds of differences. And certainly in .NET, that causes a problem because while some aspects of the execution environment can handle multiple versions being loaded at the same time, a lot of the tooling doesn't support it. So that's, I wrote a blog post on that fairly recently uh, saying, hey, we need to get better at this. So I don't know how many dependencies and what level of that sort of versioning problem you have in data science. Um, I would say that the, the most important thing isn't even versioning in terms of making sure that everything has a number, but at least keeping a versioned history of things. So whether that's in Git or in Subversion or some other source control, so that you can get back to, oh, I know I had a working version you know, a, a few days ago, let me have a look at that. And I can imagine, you know, I've been to some machine learning talks and done sort of workshops, but don't have significant experience. 
I can definitely imagine the importance of keeping a log of, well, I tried this and this was the result. And that's uh, sort of goes on to another topic that I'm absolutely passionate about within programming, which is how do you diagnose problems? And a lot of that is making sure that you can keep a log of exactly what you did and exactly what the result was and being clear enough about that without spending hours and hours doing it. So I would imagine that's a, a skill that data scientists sort of pick up naturally because it feels like it's probably closer to one of your core competencies. Um, so I would love it if the data science community could try to teach the programming community about how to keep good logs of what, what happened when you tried things. That's, that's fantastic. And before we dive into more into diagnosing problems, I wanted to also mention that for data sciences, there's a very, um, I guess, a very specific component that needs to be also remembered is that you don't only need to version the code that you're creating, but you also need to version the data that you're using. Absolutely, yes. To the train. same data set behaving differently under different versions of your your code versus different versions of the data behaving differently under the same version of your code. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's like another moving part in the equation. So right. I love that, that, you know, there is that similarity of versioning, but there's a difference that, you know, data is such a crucial part of what data scientists do. And then moreover, you need to have these, uh, not just like say what kind of data was, like have a backup preferably of that data, because maybe that data is not in your control. Maybe you're getting it from uh, a server where somebody might change it and then you're completely stuck, you know, you have no right. way. It's important, right, in versioning to be able to go back to the previous version in case yeah. the, the new version yeah. is broken. And to know which version you did things against. So <laughs> we seem to be, um, whether I'm driving it to topics that I'm interested in or, or not, <laughs> uh, there's something similar in programming that many people are unaware that they're depending on version data with time zones. Mm -hmm. So uh, oh, many wow, people a good assume one. that time zone rules just stay the same forever. You know, well, you go into daylight saving time at this time, and then you come out of daylight saving time at this other date, um, and you know the rules are set. But no, the the rules change several times a year, and I don't mean because things go into or out of daylight saving time, but a country might decide we're not going to have daylight saving time anymore. And in yeah. fact, the European Union at the moment is deciding, um, I think in principle, it has been agreed that from 2020, I think, um, countries will have the option of no longer using daylight saving time. And so everyone who has recorded some data that is time zone aware in some form or other, they have recorded it with presumably their, the current version of time zone data that they were using at the time. But I'd be very surprised if more than 1% of developers actually recorded, yes, I was using IANA time zone data 2016J or whatever it is, uh, that, that was the rules that, were, that we knew about at the time, which predict future and past things. Um, it's just a, an aspect of version data that people don't expect to be versioned. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, even Russia had this a few years ago when they stopped using daylight saving times for a few years and now they've started back using it or right. something like that. And uh, try keep <laughs> keeping track of all those things. And that has a massive impact, right? Like it, uh, uh, you, you, your analysis can be completely wrong, especially if you're doing something, I don't know, for example, on, uh, on uh, 
data relating to financial markets. Bam, all of a sudden it's not 8 a.m., it's 9 a.m., or it's not 7 a.m., it's Absolutely. 8 a.m. Absolutely, yes, the, yes, the, it really matters. And it also matters how quickly you can get updated data because uh, some countries don't give much warning at all that they are changing their rules. Literally, sort of, uh, there have been countries that were about to go into daylight saving time and announced the day before, no, we're not going to do that. Wow. And I, I had colleagues who were going through airports and half the monitors in the airport said one time and half the monitors said a time an hour later. <laughs> of, of all the places that you really, really want to be sure what the time is, an airport is absolutely one of them. Oh, that's crazy. That's crazy. Um, okay. And you mentioned uh, a really interesting topic, which I love, um, diagnosing problems. It, right. Code is code, whether you're uh, coding in... Uh, oh, by the way, can you tell us quickly? So you mentioned C-sharp compiled language, Python, on the other hand, interpreted language. What's the difference? Yes. So uh, I believe that even Python, there can be compiled-ish versions. But to be honest, I, I don't know very much about Python. So where I give opinions on Python for any time in this podcast, please treat them with a grain of salt, a very, very large grain of salt. Um, but a compiled language like C-sharp, you take the source code and you provide it and any libraries that you depend on into the compiler, and the compiler outputs a file which contains binary a binary representation. Now, for compiled languages like C and C++, that compiled representation is pretty much machine code that can be executed directly. For C-sharp, it's something called intermediate language, uh, which is roughly equivalent to Java bytecode, if any of your listeners are familiar with that. So again, Java, a compiled language, you get out class files that are in this bytecode format that the JVM, the Java virtual machine, knows how to run. Um, and it gets even more complicated because both Java and .NET almost always take those compiled, so they're binary formats, not your original text source code, mm -hmm. but they then do something called JIT compilation, which is just-in-time compilation. So they take that um, sort of nearly machine code and turn it into actual machine code so they don't need to go through that translation step several times. So that happens at execution time, but there's this first bit where you get to check that all your source code actually makes sense. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, uh, in, in in summary, the in some cases it's just like C, I know like C plus plus and C is compiled straight to a file that can be run. In the case of Java and C sharp, it's first compiled to intermediary file, and that helps find any errors at compilation, among other benefits, of course. And then right. the second just in time compilation is required, so it can run on multiple architectures. And again, in addition to other benefits as well. And nice and efficiently. And there are ways of compiling, certainly C-sharp, and I believe Java with ahead-of-time compilation, which is sort of doing the uh, the JIT compilation bit of um, bytecode into machine code, doing that ahead of time instead of when it started to run as well. So there are lots of different options. Gotcha. gotcha. And what about, uh, so on the other hand, we have interpreted languages such as Python, um, any comments on that? Like, what's the difference? So, in theory, if you take your very simplest idea of a of a an interpreted language, you have this interpreter, just like you have a Java virtual machine, um, but instead of working with the bytecode, it's working with the source code, and so it runs and it, it maybe reads your whole 
file your whole source file into memory but then it looks at one line at a time and says right what does this line mean i will execute the code that's in that line and by execute i have to understand what it means so if it if it's something like let x equal y plus z then it needs to parse all of that and understand what it means and then say okay now i need to load the value of y load the value of z add them together save them in variable x mm -hmm. um now the very simplest kind of interpreter if you had that code in a loop would be looking at that line saying let x equal y plus z every single time and have to understand it now that is massively inefficient you would uh everything would run far too slowly to be useful mm -hmm. so more modern interpreters might store uh, some almost like the il or the bytecode representation of that uh, so that it doesn't have to do the textual parsing every time or they might actually do something like the JIT compilation. So even though it's sort of interpreted, I think very few languages are genuinely interpreted the whole time mm -hmm. these days because we've got good at doing things in whether that's JavaScript, you know, V8, etc. The the difference between interpreted and dynamic, so static versus dynamic languages and compiled versus interpreted, they are different things, but often go hand in hand. So static languages tend to be compiled, dynamic languages tend to be interpreted. Mm -hmm. um, but the difference in execution time between those two sort of extremes uh, has gone down massively over time because we've got a lot better at dealing with interpreted languages. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so in some one of the differences that somebody programming these languages would see, and this is quite important, by the way, for data scientists because more and more data science is becoming not just all right let's let's do some analytics is becoming more product oriented like in certain startups data science is embedded into the product so you will encounter Absolutely. yeah you will encounter uh times when you will especially if you go into the startup world or developing new products um you will encounter situations where you will need to work with compiled languages and the difference in what you observe can be that if you're typing some code in python and then you run it it will run, for instance, you have, uh, let's say, have 100 lines of code and you have an error in line 50. It'll run the first 49 lines and actually execute them. When it gets to line 50, it'll give you an error. In a compiled language, when you try to compile that, it will give you an error and, and none of those lines will be run. So it's important right. to understand that if you have some, for instance, data manipulation, data cleaning, some pre-processing in the first 49 lines of code, in one case, they will be executed and your data will change. Whereas in another case, they won't be executed because you won't be able to compile the file. And I think that's that's quite an important, quite radical difference for people to understand that uh, not only it's about what you see, but also the effect that it can have in the background on anything that you were doing before that error occurred. Absolutely. And personally, I would like to see more support for uh, static languages and, you know, Obviously, I would love to see C Sharp used more in machine learning and data science in general. Um, if I knew more about data science, I might be in a place to help that along. As it is, I'm almost entirely ignorant, so I don't know how we would do that. Uh, but it does come back partly to the aspect of interpreted languages are often also used interactively. Um, so my understanding is that a lot of data science is done via Jupyter Notebooks and the mm -hmm. like, where you're exploring things as you go. So it's not like you write all of your 100 lines of code and then run it and then find that there's the problem, but you've built that code up over time by 
trying things interactively. Mm -hmm. And that's where statically typed and compiled languages tend to, and this is always sort of caveat of tend to, there are exceptions, um, tend to not deal very well with being done interactively. You tend to have to do things uh, by creating your source file beforehand. Now that's not always the case. And I, this may be where we, how we build C-sharp uh, support for data science or data science support for C-sharp, depending on which way you want to think about it, um, is by allowing C-sharp to be run more interactively. And there are definitely projects available for that sort of thing already, C-sharp scripting um, approaches and uh, ways of running C-sharp in a browser and the like. So maybe there will be really good Jupyter Notebook support in the future. I, I'm sure that there have been some projects to explore Jupyter within C-sharp um, already, but I, they haven't gained the sort of traction that we'd need to see more mainstream support. But I think the benefits, as you were saying, of you know, not running those first 49 lines of code before you find the error at line 50, there are significant benefits of that. So I would I would love to see more support um, for C-sharp within data science. I just wish I could help with it, but I just don't have the, the knowledge to do so. Yeah, and it's, it's really a difference in philosophy, isn't it? For, for me, when I think of data science versus uh, programming and like compiled languages, like data science, like you said, it's it's very explorative in nature. And even if you're not just like looking for insights, even if you want, you know, you want to build a model, it still requires exploration of different approaches during the the process. And for me, the way I imagine it, the analogy is like <laughs> like building a sandcastle. Like you're trying this out, this falls over, you put a new tower on, then you put the wall, and then the water washes it away. You build it again, and so on. It's, it's kind of like always you're playing with clay or sand. This type of creative approach whereas right. in uh, in programming especially like in c sharp in the world of c sharp and more in the compiled languages uh, like I, I it was a long time ago for me so you pro you're much better place to draw an analogy here but does it, it it almost feels like you have to have like you have a blueprint of what you want in advance so it's, it's like you're building a castle not out of sand but out of like little bricks or something like a lego piece to and you, some extent to some extent i mean with more uh, test-driven approaches that it's often, well, you write the test and then you make sure that that's implemented. It's not like, I, I don't want anyone to get the impression that you write the whole application mm -hmm. and then you can run some of the code. Mm -hmm. no, the, you can still do things iteratively, but it's it's less interactive iteration. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, now it can feel some somewhat close to it if you get a really tight um, test run, write some code, uh, run the tests again, etc. Um, when you can get that loop fairly tight, it can be pretty good. And I would want to mention F-sharp at this point. So F-sharp is a functional language which is still compiled to IL, so you can interoperate between F-sharp and C-sharp and other IL languages, VB, etc. But F-sharp was designed from the start to support this interactive exploratory mode and my understanding, not as an F-sharp developer, um, is that a lot of F-sharp work does happen in that exploratory mode like data science. So maybe actually thinking about what would be a good um, language for data science in a compiled, statically typed way would be F-sharp rather than C-sharp. And maybe we can 
build on that F sharp work to also support C sharp over time. Mm -hmm. um, and my understanding is some data scientists do already use F sharp. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm very interesting. Didn't, <laughs> didn't even know about F sharp. <laughs> <laughs> That's very exciting. Okay, so let's move on to uh, something uh, you touched on how you diagnose problems. Like, are there any best practices of problem diagnosis that, uh, like in code, that you can share with data science because code is code, right? Like even though it's interpreted or compiled, whatever, like it's still a very, you know, in any country, this is what I love about code. You can be, a, you can know how to code in uh, Europe, you can know how to code in Africa, you can go then to China and code there. Code is pretty much the same around the world. So are there any best practice, something you've developed throughout your career that you can share on how to find those errors in the code? Or like sometimes errors, they don't even pop up as an error, but it's right. it's there. Yes, so there are so many different sort of categories of error. There are errors that you find at compile time that you don't understand why this doesn't work, why it won't compile. Mm -hmm. And they're relatively easy generally. Mm -hmm. uh, there are errors where things go bang uh, with exceptions um, mm -hmm. at execution time and they can be reasonably easy to find and fix. There are errors where um, my code all runs, it just produces the wrong output and that's mm -hmm. where things start getting harder mm -hmm. and then it gets really hard with my code runs and produces the right output on my machine but mm -hmm. the wrong output in production mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that's fairly hard and then it gets even harder with the co the code runs and always produces the right output on my machine and 99% of the time it produces the right output in production as well but just occasionally it's yeah. very very slightly wrong and diagnosing those errors can be really hard and mm -hmm. um, we we should probably time box this almost because I can talk about diagnostics for a very very long time and I'm hoping eventually to write a book about how to how to get into diagnostics because this feels like the silver bullet that um, being without trying to be too immodest, I'm pretty good at diagnostic things. Mm -hmm. And that is the reason that I am able to help people on Stack Overflow. So you give me a problem. And so long as you have given it to me in a sufficiently well-specified way, ideally so that I can reproduce the problem, then I can apply the diagnostic steps and help you get to an answer. Now, I can do that. But if I have to help 100 people that way, then I have to go through the diagnostic steps 100 times. Obviously, it's far more efficient if I can um, improve the level or you know, help improve the level of diagnostic skills throughout the community. And then each of those 100 people could have diagnosed the problem themselves and, and fixed it themselves. Gotcha. Now, well, th this is a great opportunity to try out what you were going to show right. in the book. So, so that's that's a simplification, and there are times where you need more knowledge than you have, etc. But um, I think the silver bullet in diagnostics is divide and conquer. Mm -hmm. So you have a whole application that might involve some XML parsing, producing some JSON. It's interacting with a database. It's interacting with a web service. Um, it's got a, a web front end all these things and something is wrong. Mm. And the first thing to do in my experience usually is try to isolate where the problem is. So if you can reproduce it without doing any XML parsing, then the problem probably isn't in the XML parsing. It may well be that that has problems as well. And one of the fascinating areas in diagnostics is uh, where you happen to notice 
other problems as you're you're tracking <laughs> down one major thing but it's really easy to be sidetracked by oh it turns out that's broken and a third thing's broken yeah. ah, ah, everything's broken or, or when you have like two problems that cancel each other out oh that yeah that's even worse so <laughs> you you think well why is that code doing that i will fix that as i go along oh no that's now caused another problem yeah um and making sure that you keep some kind of record of well i need to go back at one at some point and fix those things but mm -hmm. without losing track of where you are on your main this is the problem i'm trying to fix mm -hmm. um so divide trying to conquer. reduce things sorry divide and conquer yes divide and conquer so try to reduce things to uh the smallest program that you can find that demonstrates the problem and not just the smallest in terms of source code size, but the smallest in terms of environment and the friendliest in terms of environment. I'm a big, big fan of console applications. Mm -hmm. um, not necessarily for running them. Yeah, you know, I, I do like building tools that are console applications that do something useful. Mm -hmm. But if I'm trying to diagnose a problem in a web application, but I don't think the problem is in the webbiness of it, mm -hmm. but yeah, I'm say uh, something I will be diagnosing today is trying to uh, make calls to a diagnostic service, um, a Google API diagnostic service from a web application. Mm -hmm. Now that probably is going to depend on the web side of things because it goes into the logging framework. But if in the same application, I found that I had a problem talking to our speech API, for example, mm -hmm. then that wouldn't be specific to the web application. So I'd probably pull that out into a separate console application, hard code the data rather than taking it from the user because it's then easier to share the program and easier to reproduce without having to type in the input every time. And then I've got a console application that's you know 30 lines long or something that doesn't behave as I want to. And that's a really small amount of code to debug. I can launch a debugger for a console application really easily mm -hmm. um, without having to you know, work out all of the intricacies of setting up the debugging for a web application, which you know, it's not very hard these days, but it's it's just extra steps. So you're trying to get this as small as possible, as simple as possible. Um, mm -hmm. If you think about the the amount of code that's involved in a console app compared with uh, a Windows GUI or a web app or a mobile app, all of these things, um, if you can get it into some really simple form, then it makes things so much easier to work with. And so sometimes you will still need to debug into it and uh, you know, try lots of different things. But often just having simplified things, having um, separated out all the 99% of code that doesn't matter so that you can focus on the 1% that does matter, suddenly it becomes really obvious. And you think, well, why didn't I see that before? Well, because you had all this other code that was potentially wrong, but turned out not to be. So yeah, it's isolating the problem um, and knowing how to say, okay, for the moment, I will hypothesize that the problem uh, isn't in the XML. So I will just hard code the data that would normally be parsed from the XML. And maybe I will hypothesize that it's not in the formatting of the JSON. So I will hard code the JSON output or whatever it is. Um, getting rid of those dependencies is the the big thing for diagnostics within programming mm -hmm. now i don't know how well that sort of uh transfers into data science maybe you can um simplify your data set so if you've got an enormous data set and it's giving you some strange results i can see there being significant problems in saying well i will take a much smaller part of the data set 
um, whether that's fewer data points or um, removing half the features and saying, well, I'll I'll only concentrate on their on the the people's name, address, and um, you know, age or something, and see whether I still get the the same results. Um, I would imagine that that everything's so intricately bound in data science models um, that you could e easily take the wrong steps there. But hopefully, some of it transfers. No, no, definitely, that's it's very valuable um, advice to divide and conquer and in the way i see it is basically you have lots of degrees of freedom of where the error could be try to cut cut as many of them off as possible to Absolutely. like yeah. uh, lock them in and uh, in terms of data science like yeah i wouldn't remove the features but in terms of limiting your data set that is actually quite common practice to develop a model with a 10 percent 10 percent of your data set and then right. only expand to 100 percent or whatever you have 50 percent later on so that could totally be applicable. Of course, area situation is different and you know, it's case by case basis, but having this philosophy in mind of, uh, okay, I have an error, it's quite a large code, all right, let's hard code certain things into it, remove, reduce the degrees of freedom and try to reproduce the error. I think, I think you're totally right, that's, that's your silver bullet. Yeah. Awesome, okay, thank you. That's a, that's a great tip on diagnosing uh, problems any any other comments like how do you not make the errors in the first place or how uh, do you like <laughs> when you're coding you have to do that like, <laughs> maybe so, there's some like some some best practice like you code 10 lines or 100 lines and then you review them or you so i don't know like what what's uh, what what's something that um that you've developed what's what's your secret sauce so the two best practices that spring to mind are very far from secret source and are pretty widely used these days are code review and tests. Mm -hmm. So um, if I come to a code base that doesn't have any tests, that scares me because mm. I don't know if I make a change, I don't know whether that's going to have some adverse effect on some other bit. Um, but a, a well-tested code base, ideally with different kinds of tests. So there's a certain amount that you can do with unit tests where you're not interacting with anything external. You try to test one piece of code in isolation from everything else. And something that's only got unit tests, okay, that's that's not so bad. But I also generally like to see integration tests. So um, where in unit tests, you tend to fake out external dependencies. You know, I will assume that my database behaves in this particular way. And so I'll fake out the, the interaction between my code and the database. Well, that's fine so long as I'm right about the assumption. So I would want to see some integration tests as well, which use the actual database to say, well, what happens when I really, really try to do this against the database or against the web service or whatever it is? And those tend to be more expensive, either in terms of resources and you know, time to set up the test, time to execute the test. They may be actually financially expensive if you're um, if you have to call some API and I might have tens of thousands of tests that are unit tests because they're essentially free. But if I'm calling some translation API and I want to call that 10,000 times within my tests, then that's going to take a long time because it takes a lot longer to make any kind of network call than to do stuff in memory. Um, and if I'm doing that an awful lot, then my I, I may be billed for those translations that actually don't end up being useful to me other than to verify the code. And I, I would want to be able to run all the tests frequently, even if I haven't made changes in half the things. So to, to some extent, 
I'm not getting much value for all those API calls that I'm making. Um, so that's why you, you want to have a good balance between unit tests that are free but sort of limited usage um, versus the more expensive in time or billing or whatever it is uh, integration tests that test far more of the, the system. Um, I would say integration tests, when they fail, you've then got a significantly bigger job to diagnose why they're failing because you've got a lot more surface area, you've got more degrees of freedom, as you put it, um, whereas the unit test is generally only testing one of those degrees of freedom. So if something goes wrong, you immediately know, well, it must be in that bit. Um, so there are different pros and cons for those different kinds of tests, but they definitely help to reduce how many bugs will get into my code as will code review. Fantastic. Th thank you so much. So uh, th this part of our discussion, I think, has been very useful, especially for data scientists who want to get an edge in terms of get, um, being prepared for product development and integration of data science into product. I think that's a big thing to put on your resume. Right. <laughs> and after listening to this, they can totally do that. Um, <laughs> And uh, in the interest of time, we only have about 10 minutes left. I, I do want to talk a bit about community. So Absolutely. this is a very important topic. Uh, we actually ran a survey recently uh, among our students. We have, um, uh, we have about 850,000 students on Udemy, uh, Udemy uh, studying mm -hmm. data science and um, close to 100,000 on super data science. So this survey, I think, went out just to the super data science community or super data science students. Um, and one of the biggest, I was actually talking to our business development manager today, and he said one of the biggest insights that we got from the survey is that people want a community. P that right now, the way data science is structured, the way people are learning it, it's, it's, an, it's a very hot topic. People, data scientists uh, want to learn, data scientists are needed in the job market, and uh, people are learning. But one of the things that still lacks in, at the moment is that whilst there are courses and the knowledge is out there and you know we are one of the providers of this knowledge one of the things that we could do better is we could create a community for people to interact feel more um to have some kind of like feedback loops have some friends have some buddies have some um you know conversations interesting um talks with people and so on and learn from each other support each other mentor each other so that's a big thing. And in the development world, as we discussed at the start, community has naturally evolved and it's already been around for longer than in the data science world. So tell us a bit about the development community. What, what is it like and why do you enjoy being part of it so much? Uh, so the first thing to say is that it's not like there's one development community and I'm sure you know that already. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it's important to emphasize because not only are there lots of different communities? So there, there's the C-sharp community, the Ruby community, the Java community, et cetera. And even within that, there are different sort of sub-communities that are massively overlapping and different ways that those communities come together. So as just some examples where I'm involved in community. So Stack Overflow, obviously, is it's not trying to be a social network. Uh, so in some ways it's impersonal, but it's community of learning. Um, and I think it's it's important to think about each community, what you're hoping to get, and think about whether you want people to be taking personal time and getting to know other, other people 
in the same sort of area because something like Stack Overflow only does that marginally because that's not its aim. Its aim is to have questions and answers. Whereas at the other end, you've got user groups. Um, I go to the Reading C Sharp user group or Reading.net, and I've spoken at many other user groups. And there, often there's much more of a feeling of, hey, I want to talk to other people uh, in the same space. And that's partly for sharing information, just getting to know people, because it's always nice to get to know people. You know, we are sociable people. Um, finding out about job opportunities, learning more information, etc. cetera. Uh, so that's typically in-person and much more of a, a social aspect. Then somewhere in between there's conferences where during the conference talks, obviously that's mostly one-to-many, the, the conference speaker speaking to the room and getting some feedback, but it's relatively rarely discussion oriented. But then in the halls between uh, talks or if you're brave and want to say, well, I'm not going to go to any talk now. I'm just going to hang out in the lobby and talk with other people. And that's a totally valid thing to do. Um, it just feels, it can feel a bit odd to start with, but once you get used to it, it's it's a great thing. If there's no talk that you're particularly interested in, just chat with people and you'll get loads out of it. Mm -hmm. um, there are more organized bits of community. So I'm on the board for the .NET Foundation, which tries to be a sort of community hub in terms of supporting various .NET projects, acting as, to some extent, a, a bridge with Microsoft um, so we can represent .NET users uh, in a cohesive way. And yeah, the .NET Foundation is still um, finding out what the what needs it needs to meet and how to meet them. But it, it tries to be an online community uh, enabler as much as a community in its own right. So there are all these different ways that you can be community. And I would certainly encourage the data science community to think along similar lines of, it's not like there needs to be one big player. And arguably, it would be better for there not to be a single big player that if it doesn't work for some data scientist for whatever reason, then they feel they don't have a community to be part of. Um, having lots of smaller self-organizing communities, I think, is generally better. Um, and to sort of anticipate a, a potential question, make sure right from the very, very, very start that those communities are as inclusive as possible right from the start. Just do not tolerate um, any discrimination, whether that's in terms of the obvious aspects of you know, race and gender, um, sexuality, et cetera, but also in terms of be friendly to newcomers. Um, there are some communities that have a reputation for being really hostile to people who are just trying to get into that community. And why would you want to do that? You know, if you're passionate about cookery, then why would you want to discourage other people from becoming better at cookery even if they're saying well currently i'm trying to boil an egg and it keeps just cracking because i haven't got any water in there oh well you don't say well you're so stupid for not putting water in there you say well okay let's let's take a step back yep you need water um let's see what other things you might be doing that could be improved try to bring people along rather than it being some sort of i'm better than you kind of community it, it shouldn't be 
community shouldn't be competition. There can be competitive elements that everyone, uh, you know, if, if you enjoy some competitive coding, competitive, I'm, I know that there are data science competitions, mm-hmm. um, and that's fine, but that needs to be one aspect and not the whole idea of the community to prove who's best. That doesn't really help anyone. Mm-hmm. Totally, totally agree with you. Um, we actually have a conference in San Diego that uh, we run every, what is it, this year, September. So at the end of September this year, it's called Data Science Go. And one of the things that somehow just happened, and now we are very happy about it and we're promoting it, and in a sense, we're supporting it and as much as we can, is that it's a very diverse community. We have, um, so last year we had like 350 people attend from all different walks of life, all different um, backgrounds, uh, countries. Um, we had a, a much larger representation of female data scientists and right. aspiring data scientists than, um, it, like, right in the data science world right now, it's about 10%. I think we had like we had over 20 or 30% at the conference. And what we're trying to do to promote this is um, when we, we're trying to showcase and specifically invite speakers from minority groups or from, you know, like female speakers in data science, not to, you know, reverse discriminate against male data science speakers, but provide a platform for anybody to show that it can be done, that you can achieve success and, you know, create these role models for people to look up to and right. to learn from. And I and, think that, and you, I hope you're inviting them to talk about data science, not to of, talk about... Of course, yeah, <laughs> of course. Say, oh, what's it like being a woman in data science? No. Well, maybe some, some women may want to talk about that, but the main thing is recognizing that there are some awesome women in data science. And in fact, most of the conference size, I go to various developer conferences and there are often machine learning topics. And I would say 90% of the conference talks that I've been to on machine learning have been given by women who have wow. been awesome and really, really good. I have to say, I'm disappointed to hear that the data science community is only 10% women because I'd heard great things about it being nearly 50-50 at various um, user groups and things. So maybe there are pockets of data science community which already have discovered whatever secret source it is. And I should caveat that any secret source like this is likely to involve a lot of hard work. Um, you know, being inclusive is not just a matter of saying, well, I'm not going to be nasty to anyone. You need to be actively inclusive and watching out for any problems that will put people off. Um, but I would have thought data science, even more than development, really needs to be diverse because you'll be dealing with data that is diverse. And I, I suspect I'm Uh, preaching to the choir here when I say that if your data is biased, then your results will be biased. Mm -hmm. So I think having a diverse community has to be part of trying to ensure that you don't have biased data and that you can challenge assumptions that come in all through the process, whether that's collecting the data, working out what data to collect to start with, and then how you process the data, etc. It feels like if the data science community isn't diverse, you really face an uphill battle there. Yeah, I totally, totally understand what you mean. And as you mentioned before the podcast, there's quite um, substantial dangers of having a homogenous community, whether it's in the development space or the data yep. science space. Um, and there's been studies. And it's a, it's a danger to, 
it's a danger not only to the results, but also to how enjoyable it is. So there are several reasons to be diverse. Um, to encourage diversity and there are obvious moral reasons for um, discouraging people excluding people however implicitly is just plain wrong but it's also not as fun for the people who are in the community diverse communities are more interesting to be part of um, as well as getting better results and all kinds of things there's there's only benefits pretty much mm -hmm. yeah, yeah I was about to say that there's uh, there's studies to show that in diverse teams, when you have uh, people from all sorts of minority groups or from uh, you know, male and female representatives um, and um, you know, from all, as many nationalities as possible, like diverse groups like that get much better results. And uh, right. it's, it's still a question of why, you know, maybe it's the difference of opinions, difference of backgrounds and the difference of communication and how people challenge each other and things like that. There can be multiple, like millions of different reasons for that. Uh, but the fact is a fact, you know, like if you measure the results, diverse groups, uh, right. whether it's in uh, teams of developers or executive teams or data scientist teams, uh, diverse groups get, in general, uh, on average, get better results. And it correlates with other aspects. So uh, if you have teams where psychological safety is valued so that people feel that they can voice um, minority opinions, and you mm -hmm. can have a minority opinion even if you're generally a homogenous group. Um, you know, I could be sitting in a group of other cis straight white males and still disagree with them. Um, but being in a team where that is okay to do and is encouraged and supported, and people don't get shouted down, mm -hmm. um, then that in itself is great. So psychologically safe teams are likely to be more attractive for uh, members of minority groups who might feel uh, deliberately excluded from other places. So there are benefits that sort of bounce off each other. Um, you're more likely to get a diverse team the more you encourage diversity, which in, in itself uh, is useful, even in a non-diverse team, encouraging the kind of practice that is attractive for diversity. Wow, is it becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy almost? Uh, almost, yeah, yeah. And mm. it takes work. I want to keep emphasizing this. Uh, it's not something that happens because you say, okay, from now on, we're not going to be jerks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, that, that needs to be step zero, but it needs to be, okay, well, I'm going to watch myself and others for behavior that I think might have uh, excluded people or just not encouraged, not not got the best from everyone. That's what it's really about, is making mm -hmm. sure that everyone is contributing as well as they possibly can. Um, so even if you never told that junior team member to shut up, the fact that all the senior team members uh, were constantly speaking and interrupting each other may have made there be no space for that junior team member to speak up. So you're not getting the benefit from them. Why? why have them there but not get the value from them so it's it's watching very consciously and thinking how can we do better and sometimes that will be a case of calling out yourself and saying okay uh i've realized that i've been interrupting and i need to stop doing that and sometimes it can be calling out other people and that aspect of psychological safety that it's okay to call out other people and it's okay to be called out and your reaction needs to be not a defensive, well, I didn't do that. And, uh, um, but so, okay, I will acknowledge that. I will think about that and I will try to improve. 
that more positive uh, environment takes work and we mustn't underestimate how much work it takes but also the benefits are so enormous yeah and yeah and that's uh, totally echoes for what for example what uh, Naval Rikan says uh, he's a founder of Angelist um, uh, that even if you're selfish even if you're like just want you know the ultimate best career for yourself and just like only thinking about yourself even in that case for like a hypothetical case of an extremely selfish person it's in the in their best interest to maximize the output that uh, anybody on the team can give regardless of right. their background because that way you're exploiting their talents which are inevitably different everybody has different talents like with there can be major differences can be minor differences but they're different talents and there's no like no two people are, are the best at exactly the same thing so you want to exploit other people's talents to the most so that the team gets the most out of it so that you create amazing products you change the world you do create crazy cool things and that will allow you to grow allow you to get the best benefits allow you to you know progress your career as fast as and as quickly as possible so Absolutely. I totally agree with you. It's it's all about creating this. As I love how you put it, psychologically safe space for people to feel that they can speak up and share their opinions. And it's playing the the long term game instead of the short term game. So let's to to take out any sort of identity politics that some people might feel um, difficult about um, or might find difficult. Let's suppose. Uh, I wanted to make sure that the industry um, only rewarded people with a surname beginning with S because mm-hmm. my surname begins with S. So I could see immediately that that gives me a massive pay rise. I'm massively in demand. It's all great. Um, unfortunately, uh, that means that all the people who would be contributing great features, like the the lead designer of C-Sharp is Mads Torgerson. Mm-hmm. So his surname begins with T rather than S. Therefore, I won't benefit from anything that he would be contributing to the C-sharp language. All the C-sharp um, compiler authors whose name doesn't begin with S are suddenly excluded, and I don't get a decent C-sharp compiler. So, yeah, I might be well paid right now, mm-hmm. um, but I have to work with crummy tools. I don't get the best hardware. I don't get the best software. I don't get the best all the rest of the environment because I've decided to exclude people. Mm. And realistically, I don't think most people do want to exclude people. They just don't, uh, they can sometimes feel, well, if I if I widen my circle, then it means I get a smaller slice of the pie. Mm. And it's really about making that pie ever bigger and bigger and bigger. Fantastic. Well, John, that's, that's very great um, examples or like, I think people now listening to this podcast have, if they weren't agreeing before, now definitely <laughs> are on board with the implications and the, you know, the theory behind it. What are some practical steps that people can take? You, you already mentioned, um, you know, the importance. Um, sorry, like you already mentioned, like a step at the start. Could you repeat that one? And like maybe there's some other steps that people can take, uh, like practically, to help create these safe environments and safe space. So I, I sort of notionally said step zero of, of saying, let's not be jerks. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And to some extent, that is the first step, but actually it's it's learning about things. Um, so I started getting into feminism about four years ago and found just how much I needed to learn. 
And the same is true in terms of all kinds of aspects of discrimination, um, which you might sort of discount as being, well, why do we need feminism now? Women have equality, they have equal rights. Um, you know, there can't be a gender pay gap because the law says that there isn't allowed to be. Well, it's more complicated than that. And just take a humble approach to learning. Um, and if you actively engage in, there's so much material out there um, to, to find out where our industry has gone wrong um, and the situation we're in. And there's no point in trying to be part of a solution without understanding part of the problem to start with. Um, and the other sort of warning I would give is the the temptation uh, to solutionize, uh, to use jargon. Um, and a, a speaker called Rhonda Bergman put this really, really well. I don't think it was her analogy to start with, but she expanded on it very well. Um, about talking about the difference between knights and allies, that a knight goes in and wants to solve a particular situation and wants to end up being the hero. And that should never be the point of it. Uh, an ally will go in and take a broader sweep of, okay, what's what's wrong here? And how can I be, how can I contribute to the solution for the sake of the solution rather than to be some sort of hero? Um, and it's, it generally addresses the causes rather than the immediate symptoms. Obviously, immediate symptoms, if someone's being bullied or harassed or whatever it is, they need to be addressed. But just addressing those um, and saying, right, job done now, without addressing the underlying causes, um, ends up not being nearly as long-term productive. So it's really about educating yourself and trying to find out where you can be of help rather than where you can lead the charge, because chances are someone else is already leading the charge and could do with your support rather than could do with someone else sort of diluting the the message. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a very valuable uh, piece of advice that um, you can't have, like <laughs> in any undertaking, you can't have everybody be a leader. You need leaders and right. followers, and it's totally fine to be a follower. Yeah. Um, you know, like uh, even if you can contribute in a minor way to this, uh, that's that's already going to be a massive benefit. John, thank you so much. In the interest of time, um, please, could you share with us where can our listeners follow you, find you, read more about your work, or ask you a question? Maybe <laughs> that would be sure. So, so fantastic. I'm on Twitter as my Twitter handle is just John Skeet. Um, I have a blog of blog.johnskeet.uk and codeblog.johnskeet.uk. So my non-code blog is mostly around feminism, although uh, this weekend I posted a recipe for tiramisu and tiramisu ice cream. So it's it's anything non-codey. Yep. Um, and the code blog is what you'd expect it to be. Um, and obviously on Stack Overflow. Fantastic. Um, and one last question before we finish up is there any book you can recommend to our listeners that has impacted your life yeah so uh it sort of fits in very well with data science and what we've been talking about uh, i'd like to recommend everyday sexism compiled by laura bates the everyday sexism project um is a project that laura started when she uh, had a terrible experience on a bus once and speaking to other women found that her experience was not uncommon um but wasn't being talked about so this book 
has lots of data points in it, uh, lots of citations of reports and concrete data. Um, so if you think that sexism isn't a problem, then read the book and see concrete evidence about it. Um, it's sort of simultaneously inspiring and terrifying, I find. Um, and there are lots of other books around feminism and particularly in the tech industry. Uh, there's a book called Brotopia, uh, which looks at sexism in Silicon Valley. But yeah, the, my main recommendation would be Everyday Sexism uh, compiled by Laura Bates. Thank you very much. Uh, Everyday Sexism, Laura Bates. Um, everybody uh, check it out. And John, I just want to say thank you so much. I've, uh, you know, I've became a fan when I saw how much you contributed to the community. And now after this conversation, we had huge admirer of what you're doing, <laughs> both in the space of helping community and, and your expertise and unquestionable expertise in the domain of coding and how passionate you are about building community and making it um, accessible to everybody and making sure that all minorities are respected and everybody has that that equality is there and so thank you so much for spearheading this this space in the world thank you for having me on the podcast thank you everyone for tuning in to the super data science podcast super appreciative of you being here and that was john skeet the top contributor on stack overflow joining in for today's conversation and uh, how amazing is that i completely enjoyed our conversation about the technical aspects at the start and about the community and being all inclusive towards the end i hope you got a lot out of this and one thing to always keep in mind is that indeed data science is becoming ubiquitous and eventually you'll see it be embedded all over the place it won't be just providing you know creating models providing business advice but you're already seeing data science being embedded into products and that includes uh, products where development is required you know websites and apps and uh, different um, it basically programs run everything we are we see around us you know whether it's uh, Alexa that's in your kitchen or uh, whether it's uh, a washing machine or uh, an airplane it is a code that's running that and as data science and machine learning AI get more and more integrated into that we will need to understand better the world of developers and the de and developers will need to better understand the world of data science so if you want to get ahead of the competition if you want to have a significant advantage or an additional significant advantage on your resume in your career this is definitely something to look into data scientists who understand uh, what development is all about understand these differences that we talked about such as uh, compiled versus interpreted languages what is versioning how that affects developers how that affects data scientists uh, what kind of problems you want to diagnose what is the silver bullet in code diagnostics uh, you know the divide and conquer principle. What uh, what are code reviews? What are tests? All the things that we talked about, taken out of context, might seem that you know they're too far-fetched for data scientists. Actually, it's a massive advantage you can add to your career. So hope you enjoyed this podcast. Got a lot out of it. Uh, make sure to follow John. His uh, Twitter handle is at John Skeet and spelled J O N. S-K-E-E-T without the H, so J-O-N-S-K-E-E-T. Uh, make sure to follow John, he already has 63.8 
thousand followers and that means he's doing something right and uh, obviously sharing very valuable knowledge uh, as always you can get the show notes for this podcast including all the materials mentioned and uh, including the book that John mentioned at www well you can get a link to the book not the book itself of course uh, at www.superdatascience.com slash 285 that's superdatascience.com slash 285 there you can also find the transcript for today's episode on that note thank you so much for being here today and i look forward to seeing you back here next time until then happy analyzing